Hello and welcome to episode 177 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. And in this episode, we hear from Sevgi Adak, Associate Professor at the International Aga Khan University and the author of Anti-Veiling Campaigns in Turkey, State, Society and Gender in the Early Republic, published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. The book examines measures taken by the Turkish authorities against women's veiling, as well as other forms of clothing in the 1920s and 1930s. It complicates the rigid idea of sweeping official measures imposed from the centre onto a passive, traditional and resentful Turkish public, giving us a more nuanced and sophisticated account of the dynamics between state and society. Before we get started with the interview, remember you can find our entire archive of interviews going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you numerous extras, including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Of course, that includes the book that we're talking about in this episode, but it also includes hundreds of other titles on Turkey and Ottoman history published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury, available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout, and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and e-books. If you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then good news because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published as episodes on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached, you'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now onto our conversation with Sevgi Adak. The book fits into a key theme that we've explored in a number of episodes over the past couple of years, giving us a bottom-up history pushing back against more traditional state-focused accounts of the early Republican era. So I started by asking Sevgi Adak how the book fits into this idea of complicating the rigid state versus society division in Turkey. Yes, as you rightly mentioned, the book is inspired by and contributes to a new literature that has emerged and grown roughly in the last 20 years or so, and which we can call this perhaps a social history approach to the single party period in Turkey. And this literature basically aims to critically revisit the conventional or more hegemonic narratives about the early Turkish Republic. Now, as you also mentioned, these narratives narratives differ significantly from one another. If you look at, for example, the classical studies on the period, they were more shaped by modernization theory, and this had its Kemalist and non-Kemalist versions. Then came the strong state approach, which was very much actually uh, state-dominated. And from the 1980s onwards, I would say 
the studies of this period was very much dominated with the center periphery analysis. In fact, one can argue that the entire field of Turkish studies was very much under the influence of the center periphery analysis. The starting point of the book is that these analyses, even though they differ from each other very significantly, nevertheless share a particularly state-centric and elite-centric reading of modern Turkish history. And also that they share a basic assumption, which is that state and society are largely fixed and homogenous entities that are positioned in opposition to each other. And when you look at how they analyze the state, we can see that it's largely shaped by an analysis of the ideology of the elite. So in the literature on single-party Turkey, the emphasis has been very much on Ankara, on central state institutions, on the central elite occupying the central organs of the regime and obviously putting here Mustafa Kemal Atatürk and a close circle of elites around him at the center. So the literature is very much about how they shaped the state policies. These policies were very much analyzed based on the ideological aspirations and motivations of the central elite, rather than how they were implemented, for example, or how they were consumed by ordinary citizens, or how they were contested once they were put into practice. So the, the point of departure in the book is the critique that these narratives fail to capture the complexity of the socio-historical reality on the ground. What I argue in the book is that an analysis of the early republic through such rigid dichotomies, I mean, state versus society, center, periphery, or the Kemalist elite versus the conservative masses, they don't help us understand the multiplicity of actors, discourses, and power struggles at all levels. So the book complicates the story around the state and society and focuses more on the relationship between state and society. And in fact, the aim of the book is to kind of bring the local back into the analysis of the single party period. Yes, and we'll come on to that a bit later on, some of those local sentiments, some of those specific examples of local campaigns, both mm -hmm. positive and negative, uh, a bit later on. I want to talk also about this issue of the veil and, and where that fits into this broader idea of reforming clothing that wasn't just limited to the veil. There was also, of course, the hat law of 1925, the outlawing of the mm -hmm. fez, the sidelining and indeed banning in some some cases of beards on men. And, you know, men's dress and appearance was also carefully regulated and monitored in this early Republican era. And that was also, you know, linked to this idea, really, of clothing as a signifier for the modernization of the new republic. There was this firm link drawn between the reform of clothing and modernization and, you know, the ideal of the new republic that the state elites had at the time. It was just basically this association of certain clothing with, quote, backwardness and uh, uncivilized ways of life. So mm -hmm. could you just talk about how this idea of clothing fit into this broader civilizational framework of modernization and nationalism at the time? 
Yes, the anti-whaling campaigns were very much part of the general mobilization for the modernization of clothing in the single party period. And in that sense, they were very much linked with other attempts in changing dressing and most obviously prominently the head law of the 1925. And you're also right in drawing a parallel between the kind of discourse that was utilized against the traditional headgear and particularly fez in the context of the headlow and the discourse against the use of the certain types of fails that were targeted during the anti-whaling campaigns. And perhaps it's important to note here for those who are not very familiar with the content of the anti-whaling campaigns is that whaling in the context of the anti-whaling campaigns very much meant the use of specific whales. And that is the face veil, which is called peche in Turkish, and the full body cover, charshaf, and certain local equivalents of Charshaf, for example, Peshtamal. So in the context of the anti-Vedian campaigns, although we know that the sort of the Kemalist ideal was a total Europeanization or Westernization of the, the clothing, and so which would imply removal of the head cover as well, Nevertheless, what happened in practice when these aspirations uh, were turned into specific state policies, the campaigns targeted only Peche, Charshaf, and the Peshtamal. So there was no open targeting of, for example, covering of the hair. And if you look at the discourse, it was mainly the Peche, Charshaf, and Peshtamal that were ultimately stigmatized as backward, uncivilized, and not just that, but also a non-national type of clothing. So the discourse around modernization of clothing went very much hand in hand with an aspiration or an attempt to kind of find some sort of national clothing as well. The Kemalist narrative always tried to kind of find a compromise between what was modern and what was national. And this is not really specific to the single party era. If you look at, for example, the debates around clothing and modernization and nationalism throughout the late Ottoman period, we see that these discussions around clothing have their origins in the Ottoman era. There was a very vibrant debate, in fact, around Milikiafet, national clothing. So the Republic very much, in fact, inherited that debate and uh, aspired to take it further through specific state policies. Perhaps it's also important to note that there is not a single law that we can sort of say as the dress law of the Republic. And in fact, if you look at the policies around uh, the clothing change, the regime kind of hesitated to regulate this domain through legislation. And in that sense, for example, the head law is a very notable example because it is the example where actually 
there was a law banning the use of traditional male headgear. So there was direct state intervention through legislation to male headgear, whereas there was no law or central degree or governmental decree or a, or a central directive that directly intervened in whaling, even in the case of face whale and the use of the full full body cover. And I kind of spent some time to try to understand why that was the case. So why do we have this contrast between the head law on the one hand and the anti-whaling campaigns Uh, which basically meant that the state transferred the issue of changing women's clothing basically to the local authorities, to the local elite. But I think there are two aspects to that relationship between the head law and the anti-whaling campaigns. One is that I think it's important to remember that even though the content of the head law was quite specific and limited, it nevertheless marked a turning point in public debates around modern and national clothing. In other words, it clearly had wider repercussions concerning the importance of modern dress, importance of looking modern in the public sphere. So I would say that even though its content was actually quite specific, the head law kind of triggered an almost national mobilization or campaign for modern clothing. So it kind of created this general atmosphere just two years after the establishment of the Republic, an atmosphere in which clothing change became a signifier for the modernization of the society, for the modern phase of the Republic. So it was only, I would say, in the air, the link between the modernization of male clothing and modernization of women's clothing, even though there was nothing in the law that mentioned any element of uh, women's clothing. You know, the fact that mobilization against these veils was not part of an official campaign that was shaped by a law, I would say created an ambiguous situation. And that ambiguity, in fact, marked the discussion, the entire discussion around whaling in the years to come. And and why that was the case? It was partly because of the social reaction the headlow received. We know that there were significant protests against the head law in a number of provinces. So one explanation is that the Republican regime was quite cautious about intervening in women's whaling. They were really cautious about creating another wave of protests. And I think not just because it was a religious issue, that whaling was necessarily a religious issue, but perhaps more importantly, it was directly related with the established gender norms. Because after all, whaling is not just whaling. It's not just a question of clothing. It's a part of, of an entire system of gender relations, gender norms shaped by gender segregation, women's seclusion practices, you know, morality, question of male honor, family honor, etc. So there was that element of prudence on the side of the communist regime that the state should not directly intervene in that arena. But I think it also goes beyond that. So I don't think that we can explain the lack of legislation or official degree in the case of women's clothing purely by purely by the fact that the Kemalists elite uh, were cautious or that they were afraid of triggering a social reaction just like the headloaded. 
After all, for example, they weren't very prudent when it comes to legislating and other controversial issues. So I, it wasn't unthinkable for the state at the time to, in fact, legislate against whaling. I think the reason, another reason why they didn't want to directly intervene through legislation or a governmental because Republican regime, I think, shared the patriarchal concerns of the conservative segments of the population. I mean, as, as someone who extensively read the local and national newspapers of the time, it's quite apparent to me that the discourse on women's modernization at the time always went hand in hand with the caution that women, for example, shouldn't be too westernized, that they need to maintain their chastity, morality, etc. So as I said at the beginning, there is always this search for a balance between the modern and the national. So I would argue that that patriarchal consensus between the elite and non-elite male actors in the society shouldn't be underestimated. That consensus, even though, you know, these male actors had very different ideological visions, it nevertheless ensured that the modernist policies didn't undermine too much the existing gender norms. It is along these reasons that we can understand the lack of legislation in the case of unveiling. So there was this lack of formal central laws on women's dress in those early years. But you describe in the book how in the 1930s there was actually an intensification mm -hmm. of trends this was a broader tendency, of course. There was, during that decade, increased centralization, more control exerted, a greater degree of authoritarianism. And basically, the, the single party, the CHP, merged formally with the state in 1936, kind of symbolizing this process. And you describe how, in the 1930s, the country saw a, a wave, really, of anti-veiling measures mm -hmm. that were more forceful than before, a ramping up, really, of anti-veiling initiatives. So what can your research tell us about those initiatives? Yes, so um, my research revealed that there were in fact two waves of anti-veiling campaigns in the single party period. The, the first wave, what I call the first wave, was composed of a number of weaker, I would say, local attempts that were initiated by local administrators right after the head law. So there's that also immediate connection between the, the head law and the first wave of anti-paling campaigns. And when you look at those limited number of anti-paling campaigns in the second half of the 1920s, you can see that those local elite who initiated those campaigns actually kind of invoked the head law as a source of reference, as a source of legitimacy. So they argued that at a time when men remove the fess, which is the ultimate you know, symbol of the difference of Turkish people or Ottoman people from the West, and that they modernize their clothing, it's only natural that women also should modernize their clothing. So we see those uh, the number of anti-whaling campaigns that were initiated in the second half of the 1920s. And we also see that those campaigns were very much about the removal of the face veil not so much about the charshaf yet. 
but we also know that this first wave was largely remained ineffective. And the anti-veiling campaigns that were launched at the local level, mainly in the mid-1930s, that was the moment when anti-veiling campaigns became a kind of a countrywide phenomenon. And as you also mentioned in your question, actually many scholars point at a, at a change in the character of the communist regime with the advent of the 1930s. We see a clear turn towards statism and this was also very much connected with the socioeconomic effects of the Great Depression, but statism and the economic policies had a kind of spillover effect in other fields. We see more systematic attempts at, for example, the centralization of provincial administrations. We see, for example, the municipal law of 1930 that kind of marked the decade and that was actually quite central and important for the shaping of the anti-veiling campaigns as well. And as also you mentioned, the party started to play a much more central and active role in trying to mobilize the society along the ideological lines of the regime. And in fact, it became much, I mean, more and more difficult to differentiate between the party and the state. And thus, by 1936, we can talk about an effective merger of the party and the government, as you mentioned. So all these elements kind of brought on the consolidation of the authoritarian single-party system, which was complemented with a kind of more eager, more robust ideological outlook and agenda. So the 1930s was characterized by a, a renewed attempt at social and cultural modernization. And I think that the anti-veiling campaigns should be seen as part of the cultural modernization project of this period and as part of the state's effort to extend its control basically over the society and to basically not to leave any aspect of the social life untouched by some sort of state intervention. We can also talk about that in the context of this cultural modernization, there was an extra attention to visual aspects of modernity. And it is in this context that clothing became such a significant signifier of social change. I mean, if you look at, for example, the propaganda material that the regime used, they were very much dominated by images of, of women completely un, un, unveiled, occupying professional positions and also inhabiting modern spaces. So there was a lot of energy and time invested in changing those visual aspects of the culture. And that's where I situate and see the anti-veiling campaigns and why is it that we see the main wave in the 1930s. So there you're describing what kind of fits into this traditional narrative of state versus society, the state becoming more and more keen to mm -hmm. crack down on any kind of autonomous movements from the ground. But your book cites numerous examples of how this rather rigid dichotomy was actually far more complicated. And you do this partly by looking at how these measures were implemented on mm -hmm. the ground in local communities by local political and social actors. And obviously, you know, the measures that were introduced always relied on these lo local conditions. And you show through your study of these examples how people on the ground, they both resisted some of these measures 
measures, but some of them took the opposite stance and were very zealously supporting it. So it just Mm -hmm. goes to show, you know, how complicated this really was on the ground. It wasn't a simple case of of the state imposing measures on a passive public. There was some on the ground who were resisting and and weren't happy about these measures, but there were also some on the ground who wanted more to be done. So it's a very Mm -hmm. complicated picture. And indeed, you you cite some fascinating examples of overzealous local administrators Mm -hmm. who were actually Mm -hmm. criticised and chided by the central authorities in Ankara who actually wanted them to be more cautious in these measures and more gradual. So could you just talk about this, you know, what specific examples can you give that illustrate this discord between the local and the centre? You know, what importance did local players have in this story of anti-veiling campaigns? No, precisely. I mean, you have actually summarized quite well how complicated the process was. So in my answer to the previous question, I obviously try to contextualize it in the context of the 1930s. We know that the regime became more authoritarian. There was a more robust project of cultural modernization. But of course, we should be careful and not assume that these ideological aspirations and, and, you know, imaginations and representations that were very much visible in Ankara, perhaps. So we shouldn't assume that they automatically traveled to the provinces and were directly passively consumed by both state and, and, and social actors. So it is there that the picture becomes more complicated. This is one thing. And the second thing is that what I try to show in the book is that we shouldn't assume these motivations for creating a more modern society or this eagerness to become more modern or look more modern. These were not just limited to a limited number of Kemalists in Ankara. We kind of underestimate the willingness of actually many local actors to, in fact, be part of this story and, in fact, to initiate those changes at the local level. So when I look at, for example, the anti-veiling campaigns, yes, Ankara was obviously involved, but the limits of that involvement were much more complicated than we would automatically assume if you look at the literature that portrays a very dominant and powerful regime imposing these modernization measures on a basically passive society. I mean, there are cases where, for example, there are clear indications that the initiative came actually from the local administrators. For example, that there were local administrators that were more royalist than the king, that, you know, they wanted to achieve the aims of the campaigns much more quickly and much more effectively than what the directives coming from Ankara were telling them at the time. For example, Ankara was consistently opposed to use of police or any kind of force in imposing the bans, for example, on the Pecha and Cherchev. And actually, Ankara kept saying that the local elites, the local administrators, should confine themselves to propaganda efforts, basically, in this matter. Whereas if you look at what happened in practice, is that some of the local authorities used municipal police. I mean, we have cases where the police was involved, the, gen- the gendarmerie was, was, was involved. So in fact, my argument is that the boundaries of these campaigns 
were not ultimately drawn by Ankara, and Ankara never completely controlled, could never completely control what was happening in the provinces. And that is why I see a huge role played by the local elite in the anti-whaling campaigns. Also, we, sh- we shouldn't assume an ideologically homogenous Kemalist elite either. There were people who were, in fact, in quite important positions in the party, in the municipality, that tried to limit the scope of campaigns in certain localities, for example. And this was also very much because of the fact that there were reactions coming from local communities, ordinary people, and of course, women. So yes, there was no, as far as we know, an organized protest a collective action. The popular reaction to anti-whaling campaigns remained largely within within a secure area, meaning that people opted for safer strategies than openly protesting against the campaigns. But nevertheless, there was opposition and, you know, there were attempts to sort of circulate negative propaganda at the local level. People wrote petitions to the authorities they spread rumors about the anti-whaling campaigns. They spread gossip about the anti-whaling campaigns and the conduct of the local authorities. So there were actually many ways to react to these campaigns. And it's also important to keep in mind here that not just that these reactions were diverse, but also that they didn't stem from a religious sort of opposition to the campaigns. As you know, I mean, it's very dominant in in Turkish studies, basically, you know, to to tell the narrative of the entire story of Turkish modernization as a story between a small number of secular elites versus, you know, largely religious conservative masses. If you look at the type of reactions and the reasons behind those reactions against um, the anti-wading campaigns, we can see that in certain cases, the reasons were not necessarily religious. For example, one of the important factors that shaped the reactions was the economic factor, because the anti-wading campaigns, basically what the campaigns wanted to do, it was basically the removal of the Fesbeil, Peche, Charshaf, and the Peshtabal. And the, the answer to the question of, you know, what would replace those whales was also quite straightforward, that women would adopt modern overcoat. And of course, they could combine it with a headscarf, although this was never openly uh, encouraged. But that meant that people had to buy overcoats, which was not readily available to many people in the provinces. And it was actually quite expensive. And in contrast, Charshaf or, or Peshtamal were mainly locally produced type of clothing. And so they were much more accessible to ordinary people. So one one of the reasons why people were hesitant to comply with, with the campaigns uh, was economical. So the situation, in fact, in the provinces was much more complex than the hegemonic narratives about the single-party period Turkey would assume. And there's a section in the book on other comparable Muslim-majority mm. countries at the time. And you describe how there were similar anti-veiling campaigns conducted in multiple different contexts, motivated by many different things. So where does Turkey fit into that broader international picture? 
is it, would you say, a unique or a typical case? Yeah, I try to also situate the Turkish case within the wider Muslim context in the book. And as you have mentioned, there are, in fact, many comparable examples. So in that sense, anti-Valian campaigns were not unique at all to, to Turkey. You can see them across the board in the global Muslim context. And in fact, they show uh, really surprising similarities and, of course, an astonishing synchronicity. So many of them were initiated in the 1920s and 30s. We need to acknowledge this broad similarity between these different cases of anti-whaling campaigns. But at the same time, there were also crucial differences. So in my analysis, I kind of pose this question of, you know, whether, for example, what whaling meant or what unveiling meant in those anti-whaling campaigns in different national contexts were the same. Because if you look at the literature around questions of whaling, unveiling, anti-whaling, there is little effort to define what they meant at the time in those localities. And so, for example, it is questionable to me whether we can compare a case, for example, like Egypt or other Arab countries in the Middle East, where unveiling in the interval period very much meant the removal of the face veil. There wasn't much discussion around the removal of, for example, covering the full body covers, etc. I'm saying this because, you know, we need to kind of be specific about the content and the scope of these attempts at unveiling in different uh, contexts. This doesn't mean that there wasn't a kind of common idealized version of a modern woman who was very much unveiled. So that ideal was also present in Egypt, in other contexts as well. But if you look at the actual politics of unveiling, we see that in certain contexts, the question of unveiling was much more limited in scope. For example, that was very much limited to the removal of the face veil. And I also bring in the effect of the colonial context there, because, of course, the Arab countries in the Middle East were in one way or another under colonial domination in the interwar period. And that, I argue, also changed the dynamics of the discussion around veiling, unveiling, but also around the question of women's emancipation significantly. On the other hand, there were the examples of anti-veiling campaigns in Soviet Central Asia and the Caucasus, and they in fact happened earlier, again in the 1920s, and they were arguably in fact quite unique, especially the case of Soviet Uzbekistan, which was quite, in fact, violent in its implementation, but also in terms of the reactions it received from especially the male actors in the society. If you look at the, the literature, there is not much literature that looks at these anti-whaling campaigns comparatively, but if you look at the limited number of studies that kind of attempt at, uh, at a comparison, there are, again, broad similarities that were drawn between the Soviet Central Asian cases and, for example, the case of Turkey. But there as well, I think that the fact that these countries were dominated, basically, by the Soviet regime 
kind of created, in a way, a colonial context that is, I think, more similar to the Arab countries. And so in my analysis, that left me with mainly three cases that I consider much more similar. You know, they have the historical commonality that can be the basis of a historical comparison. And those are the examples of Turkey, Iran, and Albania. And among them, actually, Albania is the only case, as far as we know, that legislated against certain types of veil, namely the face veil. Although, again, the campaign against whaling was very much about face veil, but also the full body cover in their case. And contrary to what is usually assumed in the literature, and still there are many studies that keep repeating that, in fact, there was a legislation in Iran which is not true. I mean, the recent literature on the Iranian case as well tell us that in that sense, Turkey and Iran were actually much more similar in that the Iranian regime as well kind of opted to transfer this issue to the local context. However, in the Iranian case, the Iranian state tried to sort of solve this issue through mainly ministries, mainly Ministry of Education and Minister of Interior. So in that sense, I think when you look at the actual practice of anti-railing campaigns in both countries, I think that Turkish case kind of differs because of the involvement of many local institutions, because of the role that the municipalities played in the shaping of the anti-railing campaigns. And overall, my analysis is that there was more institutional diversity in the Turkish case than in the Iranian case, institutional diversity in the provinces at the local level, which I think helped in the Turkish case. I mean, helped the state to sort of organize more effective campaigns at the local level. This doesn't mean that the Turkish case was less authoritarian compared to the Iranian case, but I think that institutional diversity added to the state capacity to actually run effective campaigns at the local level and also to actually contain the local reactions at the local level. Now, this issue sort of died down in later decades, but it flared up again in the 1990s and 2000s. And this was associated really with a broader culture war that emerged in those decades over lifestyle questions. Could you just talk about how this question re-emerged in the 1990s and 2000s? What was behind that re-emergence? Yes, I'm I'm often asked this question, you know, and obviously when you write a book about uh, anti-whaling campaigns, you are kind of asked to also reflect on the re-emergence of this issue in the later decades. And in fact, the issue emerged in a way, although to a lesser extent compared to the 19, the controversy in the 1990s, in every decade after the single party period. So especially the controversy, the discourse against the face veil and Charshaf, I would argue, actually never died. Obviously, it wasn't as lively, the discussion around these whales, as lively as the single party period. But nevertheless, for example, there are discussions around this in the 50s and especially in the 60s as well. 
But what happened in the 1990s, I would argue, was different. So I can understand the temptation to kind of draw a line between the, the discussions in the single party period about whaling and what happened, the banning of the headscarf in the universities in the 1990s. But I would also say that the Turkey of the 1990s was quite radically different than the Turkey of the 1930s. And the irony I see there is that what what meant modern clothing in the context of the anti-whaling campaigns of the 1930s, as I said, was basically composed of wearing an overcoat as your outdoor dress and perhaps combining it with a headscarf. So what became the target of the state intervention in the 1990s was precisely that clothing. So basically, combination of a long overcoat with a headscarf. That is the irony that I actually want to emphasize here. In other words, this shows you that the meaning of veiling, what is modern clothing, etc., actually, they never stay static. They change. So what appears as quite modern in the context of the 1930s becomes, from the perspective of the state, becomes uh, a signifier of political Islam or a kind of an Islamist reaction to the state in the 1990s. So from a scholarly perspective, I would be a bit hesitant to draw kind of a linear line between these two periods. Having said that, obviously they are linked. And the link, of course, still revolves around this question of attributing some sort of backwardness or a non-modern quality to certain types of clothing. And I think in that sense, uh, the controversy around headscarf issue in the 1990s is linked to the anti-veiling campaigns in the 30s because the anti-veiling campaigns of the 1930s were very much the historical context within which these discourses were mainly shaped. And they remained as dominant references when it came to questions of veiling and veiling what is the modern type of clothing what should be the modern outlook of Turkish women in the public sphere, etc. So it's, it's, it's a kind of a complicated story again, that, you know, on the one hand, we should be cautious about drawing a linear line between the two phenomena, but on the, on the other hand, I see the link, especially in terms of what whaling signified in the modernist perception. And briefly, what about today? It seems like the mm-hmm. issue of headscarves has almost fallen off the agenda nobody really talks about it anymore doesn't seem to be a flashpoint nobody criticizes headscarves publicly and it's just not really a question of political debate anymore so where do you see do you you think this issue is now in the past or do you think it's liable to bubble up again to the surface well it's it's hard to predict but I, I honestly personally really hope that it's an issue of the past and um that I'm actually glad that it has been sort of relaxed and that, you know, certainly we don't have a state intervention in this area. However, these connotations that various forms of clothing have in political debates, it is hard to see the disappearance of those connotations altogether. I'm not suggesting that this would remain within the, the, the limit of the discussion around whaling, But I think clothing 
or similar visual aspects of culture are still significant when it comes to questions of modernity, progress, or the type of image that you present to the outside world. So given this controversy, really heated debate around these issues in this recent history, it is hard to see that these issues will just disappear completely. But hopefully we will not have a discussion around any sort of intervention in women's clothing choices anymore. That was Sevgi Adak. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 177. Remember, her book is available to all Turkey Book Talk Patreon members for a 35% discount. Indeed, all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members for a 35% discount. Members also get transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email two articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, 3 euros or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts, or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to Armstrong at gmail.com. And finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is, among other things, a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel now for signed up members who want more, and they've also just started publishing high quality original on the ground reporting for their subscribers. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.